The reading is from Job chapter 2, 11 till chapter 3, verse 26. And it can be found on page 510 in the Red Bibles. Job chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, verse 26. When Job's three friends, Aliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nahamathite, heard all about the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they began to weep aloud. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And he said, May the day of my birth perish and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it and may blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May this morning stars and become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first days of dawn. For they did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide the trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease, for they no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that doesn't come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God hedged in, for sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared 
has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Um, we are going to examine uh, that passage to think about it together. Uh, Job's lament that Peter read for us. Um, we're going to get there uh, in a moment. Um, it is Remembrance Sunday, and um, it's a time when we remember the sacrifice and service of many who gave their lives in war. It's also a time to pause and remember the horrors of war. Wars past, wars ongoing today. And our news media is flooded with images that show some of that horror. Some of the darkest episodes in human history can be seen there. Some of the bleakest moments, some of the greatest and most intense suffering uh, is in that arena of war. Um, and so to begin with this morning, I wanted to reflect on a poem written by this man, um, Siegfried Sassoon, who was a soldier in World War I and wrote poems. Uh, and he wrote a poem called Christ and the Soldier. Now, when he wrote this, I don't believe he was a Christian. Apparently, he had uh, a conversion later on in life. But when he wrote this poem, he wasn't a Christian. It is a poem that is sort of an imagined, uh, a soldier on a battlefield who imagines seeing a vision of Jesus on the cross. And as he sees him on the cross, he has this conversation with him. Uh, and it goes on. Uh, and toward the end of the poem, these are the final, the final lines of the poem. The soldier says, Lord Jesus, ain't you got no more to say? Bowed hung that head below the crown of thorns. The soldier shifted and picked up his pack and slung his gun and stumbled on his way. Oh God, he groaned, why ever was I born? The battle boomed and no reply came back. In the midst of that furnace of World War I, he imagines a soldier asking understandable questions, questions which echo some of the questions Job is asking in chapter 3. Why is this happening? Why was I born, even? And Sassoon says he gets no answer from Jesus. No reply came back, so he just gets on on his way. There are no answers. The Bible has quite a lot of sympathy with that poem in some respects. The Bible never gives an answer, a simple answer to why suffering happens and what's going on with it and all the purposes and meaning behind it. As Paul reminded us last week, the Bible has no simplistic view of suffering to offer. And if anything, that sort of uh, tension, that uh, difficulty, that question just gets sharper and brought into even sharper focus in Job chapter 3. The three-dimensional Bible view of suffering is, is given full expression by Job. As we hear someone in the absolute pits, in the depths of despair and agony. And as we sit with that this morning, it might make us uncomfortable. It's supposed to, I think. We're supposed to sit here in the discomfort with Job for a very real reason, which I'll get to in a minute. 
Uh, but just a word on that. Some of the themes and images in this poem are very um, dark and stark and striking. Uh, there may well be people here who, for whom it is an echo of a pain they carry currently. Uh, and just to say, I, I don't want to be insensitive, but I want to allow the Bible to speak uh, with its authentic voice. God has put this here for a reason. And it might make us uncomfortable. Uh, another little note to begin with is last week we saw that G- J- Job was both blameless and a believer. Blameless and a believer. He, he was uh, someone who had faith in God and was living out that faith in God. Uh, and he'd done nothing wrong, and he trusted God, and yet he was in a place of deep, dark sorrow. Well, chapter 3 is him giving voice, putting words on that deep, dark sorrow. But as he does it, he does it as a blameless believer. That's important to recognize. Uh, These aren't the words of a backslider who's decided to give up on God. These are the words of a believer today. It is possible for a believer to say this, to give voice to what they're feeling and for them to be feeling things this deep. All that by way of introduction. But let's dive in uh, to the first point which I want to make, which is the sorrow that isolates. Because as we start our passage today, at first, verse 11 of chapter 2, we might think, well, things are starting to look up. Uh, We left Job in a pit of despair last week, but hey, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they've come. They've come, and finally there's some help, there's some support, there's some sympathy. They'll gather around him. Things can only get better, right? Well, actually, if we were going to think like that, then verses 12 and 11 give us a few little warning signs. It says they could hardly recognize him. In verse 12. Then they begin to weep. Nothing wrong with that. But then they tear their robes, put ashes on their head, and sit in the dust for seven days saying nothing. Seven days was the usual period of mourning for a king or a great person like Job was was the greatest man in the east, we were told uh, last week. It's almost as if they're saying, you're no longer Job. We don't recognize you. you. You kind of don't really exist anymore in the same way. We've lost you already. No more to be done, and nothing can be said. It might be right to sit in silence with somebody who's going through pain for a little bit, but seven days. Seven days, it's a complete silence because they have nothing to say. They can no longer relate to their old friend. He is very much alone. And suffering often works like that. Often it needs a fellow sufferer to get alongside and to understand what is going on. And if you've never suffered, then there's a sense in which you might struggle to relate to somebody who is going through deep turmoil. Well, the Bible has put Job 3 here for a very specific reason. It sets up the next 20-odd chapters of discussion and debate and all sorts of things that are going on. Uh, But it's here because there is a temptation that human beings have, and I know because I feel it. When confronted with real deep suffering, the the temptation is to to minimize, 
Maybe make a joke out of it, to deflect, distract, pretend there's some easy solution. Never mind, it'll get better. Stiff up a lip, keep calm, carry on. In some way to mask it, minimize it, hide it, or pretend it's not as big and bad as you think. I think there's a temptation in all of us to do that. And God puts Job 3 here to say, don't do that. That's not good enough. It wants us to dwell with Job in despair. To hear his voice. To sit with him to the point where it makes us uncomfortable. And to listen, really listen to the depth of sorrow that this blameless believer has found himself in. And it wants us to do that as an antidote to that impulse to offer easy solutions or to minimize or deflect. And so we're going to spend a bit of time this morning doing that. That's our second point, dwelling with Job in despair. As we've said already, some of the themes and the imagery in this poem are deeply uh, distressing. The content of the poem is horrific, which is just at odds with the absolute beauty and majesty of the artistry of the poem. The style is exquisite. It is the most beautiful poetry. So the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter, uh, here's a picture of him, uh, and he says, the poetry of Job displays a virtuosity that transcends all other biblical poetry. The world's greatest Hebrew scholar there, uh, and he knows how beautiful Hebrew poetry can be. He says, this is the best of the best. As we look through it, we'll see some of the elements of beautiful poetry and artistic uh, majesty that run through it. Which is so striking that God has chosen this, the depths of sorrow, the deepest, darkest human experience, to put the most beautiful words to. It's a very striking thought, isn't it? Uh, The poem has a a structure of sorts. Um, Verses 3 to 10, Job curses his birth. Verses 11 to 19, Job longs for death. And then at the end, verses 20 to 26, as we'll see, uh, we plumb the depths of Job's agony. And I want us to uh, dwell with it, let it speak, hear some of the poetry and the beauty of the, the style to bring out the depth of experience that Job's going through. Uh, First, let's just look at verse 3 in uh, our Bibles. May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. Now, uh, Robert Alter translates this a little bit different because the may the day of my birth perish is actually a bit shielded. It's much more dramatic in the original Hebrew. It starts, Yoved Yom Evaled Bo. It's a beating rhythm, a pounding designed to wake us up to just the intensity of the pain. And that beating rhythm is like going on throughout the poem. It's going to get deeper and deeper and deeper because he wants you to feel as he expresses himself, he's going to go deeper and deeper into his suffering. Uh, Hebrew poetry works on what's known as parallelism. So there's two halves to that verse. Anul, the day I was born, half one. The night that said a man is conceived, half two. There's a balance to them. The first one talks about the day. The second half talks about the night. So it's trying to encapsulate all of time in that pair. 
But also there's an intensification. So first he says, like, the day I was born, can we just rip it out of the calendar, please? And then he says, actually, that's not enough. Can we go back nine months earlier to my conception? Can we take that night out as well? There's a poetic style there that is trying to bring out how deeply he feels. Uh, and that sets up the rest of the first section, because in verse 4 we see that day. And then he talks about the day that he mentions in the first half of that line. And then in verse 6 we talk about that night. And he talks about that for a couple of verses. And that is the big idea of that first uh, section. He curses his birth. He just wants the day to disappear. He wants it to be shrouded in darkness. He wants it to be blotted out altogether And here's where we see some of his artistry because he uses so many different words. So even in verse 5, he talks about gloom and utter darkness, a cloud, blackness. Uh, These are all different words in Hebrew and they're quite rare words. It, It seems that this poet has more words at his command than anybody else. He has so many different words to bring, to say, I just want it gone. I want it covered in blackness. I want it covered in darkness. I want it blotted out. I want it... And great poetry works like that. The great poets have huge vocabularies. Uh, Shakespeare famously had this enormous vocabulary, invented new words. Well, this is a poet of that caliber, of that stature. And throughout those first verses, he is just saying, "I, I want this gone, this day. It needs to be smothered over, blotted out. And then in verse 8, He's able to move into the realm of myths and legends and a cosmic uh, scale. Those who curse days. Uh, These are basically an ancient equivalent of sort of sorcerers. People with magic arts and gifts who could uh, apparently tune into uh, a sort of a supernatural world. And may they rouse Leviathan. This is an ancient myth in the Canaanite world of a sea monster, a sea serpent who was a beast of chaos who came and caused destruction. And Job is saying, can you get him, that ancient sea monster? I want him to come and attack the day I was born, to come and swallow it. I want every, everything in the universe to, to come together to blot this day out. That's how much I want it gone. You get other things in verse 9. The morning stars becoming dark, waiting for daylight, not see the first rays of dawn. It's that sense of it getting darker, and you might say, well, it'll get lighter again. And Job says, may it not happen. Uh, May it know hopes being dashed that day. Uh, The deepest pain, in a sense, is is the pain of having a hope that goes unfulfilled in one sense or another. It it reminds me of um, C.S. Lewis when he writes the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. Uh, You know how the Queen curses Narnia for it to be always winter and never Christmas? Can you have the cold and the dark, but with no hope? That's sort of verse 9's expression that Job is getting at there. Uh, That's the first section. May may my day of my birth just be, be gone. And then in verses 11 to 19... It's summed up, isn't it, in the verse 11. Why did I not perish at birth? It's Job's longing for the grave. Why was anyone there to nurse me and care for me? Why couldn't I have died? 
He's longing for death here. He sees death as the great leveler. So he talks about lots of different types of people, the kings and princes, verse 14, verse 15, the wicked, verse 17, the captives and their slave drivers in verse 18. But verse 19 says, small and great alike, they're all going to the same place. But for Job, this is not a place to fear. This is a place of rest, he sees it. Uh, In fact, some of the things he does and says... um, Uh, Verse 16 is striking. Why was it not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child? Now, that is an image, I I think, I can't imagine a more tragic one, a more painful image. And, And yet, Job uses words like hidden. And when he uses that word in verse 21, he uses it to describe treasure. See, what is happening in these verses, 11 to 19, as he longs for death, is that that Job's suffering has so altered his perception of reality that tragedy has become treasure. The suffering and the sorrow is so intense, is so great that his view of life has been flipped on its head, turned upside down. So that what is truly an enemy, death, is seen as a friend. What is truly tragic is seen as treasure to Job because his suffering has distorted his view of the world and the way it is. Suffering can do that. Uh, I have spoken to people in deep depths of despair. I've listened to them. I've, I've read blogs from people uh, written in that situation. And they'll often say, look, this is how I feel. In my better moments, I know it's not actually the way the world really is, but it is still how I feel when I'm there. Suffering can do that to us. It can make us see reality differently. And remember, these are the words of a blameless believer. God has put these in his Bible. He has authorized and put them on the lips of a blameless believer to say, yes, suffering can do that. It can make you think like that. And it's all right to say it. It's all right to give voice to it. And if you're the one who's hearing it, it it isn't actually okay to leap in and say, well, you shouldn't think like that. Don't think like that. That's wrong. God says, no, Job is okay to speak like this. And it's okay for us to listen to that without having to think we immediately have to correct it. Yes, it's a distorted view of reality, but but God is okay letting Job express it. And we need to be okay with that too, when we're suffering or when we're alongside those who are suffering. There is a little more irony in verse 23. It uses the word hedged. And Satan said that God had hedged Job in as a protective thing. Uh, Job says he's been hedged in in a prison. Again, his view of reality has been flipped by the suffering that he has gone through. And then we get into the last few verses. And one of the commentators says they're basically impossible to translate. Because the coherence of language breaks down at the end. And really, what's left is, well, it says sighing and groaning in verse 24. Those words are too weak. It's really roaring 
and bellowing. It's amazing that the master poet, the one who has all command of words and language, uh, when he's giving voice to this suffering, at the end, there are no more words. It descends into groans and sighs, and language itself seems to break down in these last few verses, because all that's left is that deep bellow of pain. You may have experienced something like this or, or seen it. I remember it once in my life when I was in my curacy. I had to take, uh, tragically had to take the funeral of an infant. And you do the service and you say the final prayer and you walk away to allow the family space. And the mother went to the graveside. And the noises she made, I didn't really know a human being could make. They were bellows. They were roars. They rattled my bones and I'm sure many others. They were uncomfortable. And that's where Job is getting to at the end. He's descended to the point where he has no words left. He just has roars and bellows. And no peace, verse 26. No quietness, no rest, only turmoil. Maybe you've had that kind of pain that that not only doesn't go away, but reminds you that it's there all the time. We sometimes call it throbbing pain, don't we? Or something like that. Uh, The pain that means you can't ever get comfortable. It's not only deep and intense pain, it's pain that isn't going away and keeps reminding Job that it is there. It is a deep, dark passage and, and I haven't been able to bring out all of the different elements that give voice to Job's pain. But as we get there, surely, I hope, it is making us feel a little uncomfortable, really starting to feel how deep his agony goes. And so we're left with the question, is there any hope? And I think there are things that we can say. These are not answers, uh, but these are things for Job and for any sufferer to cling on to when you're trying to trust God in the dark. Okay, four things. One, God gives a voice to sufferers. God has chosen to put this in his Bible and he's put it on the lips of a blameless believer so that he knows, uh, so that we know that he knows that this is real. If you are a sufferer, if you are going through suffering, know that God cares about it. He cares about it enough to put it in the Bible and give a voice to it in the Bible. He's not hiding from it. He's not pretending it doesn't exist, and he's not ignoring the reality of suffering. I think that's something to hold on to. I also think it's something to hold on to because of of point two. It's not too big for God. See, when I want to ignore suffering or minimize it or deflect it or pretend it's not as big as it is or offer an easy answer, I know in my own heart, whenever I've done that, it's because I'm scared. I'm scared that if I allow suffering its full voice, it will be too big for me. It will overwhelm me. I carry that fear around. I'm sure others can relate to it. God allows somebody to speak about suffering at full volume, to go to the deepest and darkest place because he needs us to know, however deep, however dark, however big this suffering gets, he can deal with it. 
It's not too big to overwhelm him. Again, I, I think that's something to cling on to. Uh, thirdly, suffering is not the final words. Uh, one thing people have noticed about this poem is um, Job seems always to look back. He's looking backwards in the poem, really. Uh, as, he, as he says these words, he can't really see a future for himself. And that's what despair can be like very often. People who are in those depths, uh, they just can't imagine the future. But just because Job can't imagine a future doesn't mean God hasn't got one for him. It's all right to give voice to feeling like that, but it doesn't mean that God is done. Suffering is not the final word, not for Job and not for us. God has more to say. Sadly, so do Job's friends, and we'll come on to that next week. Uh, but, but God also has more to say. It's not the final word. Job chapter 3 is not the end of the book. Again, that should be something to cling on to. Again, none of these are answers, but they're things to cling on to. And, and finally, and this goes to the heart of the gospel, there is another who suffered in the dark, and yet he came through. As you read this and the depths of despair, my mind, I can't help but go to the cross. And Jesus cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus doesn't give a calm, coherent, rational answer to why this is all happening. He gives a cry of despair, a question, not an answer on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? And in that cry of despair and loneliness... I think we hear something of Job. Jesus knows what it is to go to the depths of despair, the depths that this chapter points to. And I think that's something to hold on to. When we go to the depths of unutterable despair, we might not find an answer, but we will find Jesus there ahead of us. The poem we began with from Siegfried Sassoon, he walks away because... He was hoping for a coherent answer, and he didn't get one. The Bible doesn't offer that. Jesus doesn't offer that. It offers a cry of anguish. Not a coherent answer, but a cry of anguish. That God himself would come and dwell in the depths of unutterable despair. That we will find him there ahead of us in the person of Jesus. You'll know that in a lot of my sermons, I like to quote G.K. Chesterton. I find him very helpful, so I'm going to do it again. Um, He says this. Um, He's thinking about this cry from the cross, and he says just how amazing it is. And people might be atheists, like Sassoon seems to walk away from Jesus, thinking he doesn't have any answers for my suffering, for my isolation and loneliness. He says, well, okay, atheists, let the atheists themselves choose a God. They will find only one divinity who ever uttered their isolation. Only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. You think you know the depths of despair and sorrow? Well, Jesus does too. And he's there ahead of you. And he's there knowing this isn't the end of the story. Because he went down to those depths and came through. 
None of those are answers. But they are things to rest on and cling to, to find hope in the pit. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing again. Sing a song that will give us some space to think through and process this chapter and how God speaks to us and allows us to speak from the depths. Let me pray. Father, thank you for putting Job 3 in the Bible. It is uncomfortable. It feels dark and heavy. And I pray that by your Spirit, you will be ministering to each one of us as we need through this chapter. Help us all to see that these expressions, these emotions are real, raw, and valid on the lips of a blameless believer. And yet they're not the final word. And help us all neither to minimize or deflect, but to sit with the discomfort. But as we do, remind us of those notes of hope that we can cling to at the same time. We pray this for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.